So this morning, we have a fun passage to talk about, right? We're talking about greed, and in relation to that money, covetousness, contentment, all the fun stuff. And I'm sure these are things that none of us struggle with, right? We all have no problems with that. But of course, I'm only joking. That's not true. We all struggle with it. You think about each day, you know, when we open, when we turn on our computers, you know, emails that we receive. How many of those are emails about things? How many of those are, are emails about, um, you know, what, the, what is the latest uh, phones or what's the latest computer? What, what are the deals out there? I mean, how many times when we watch the news or how many times, I, mean, I don't know if you still watch the news, but how many times if, if you turn on your computer, you go into Google and whatnot, they were bombarded with all kinds of commercial and all kinds of um, deals and things like that that vie for attention, you know, asking us to buy, asking us to consume, asking us to spend, Right? So we all, you know, at some point in time, I, and myself included, we all struggle with, with greed. You know, we all struggle with the wanting more. And let me tell you, it's not just the adults that struggle with it. You know, even little children also struggle with it. When you think about the very first words our kids learn, I've said this before, it's the word mine, right? It's mine. And so kids learn that from a very young age. And, and guess what? The adults obviously you know, continue to, to embrace that too as we lived on. And you can imagine you know, how hard it is for, for us as adults to try to teach our kids to learn to share, learn to be generous. But at the same time, we ourselves struggle with it. And it's inherent that we all struggle because we have all been tainted by sin. We have all been corrupted in our nature by sin, and therefore, we all struggle with this. And so as we look at our passage today, we are looking at a series of Jesus' warnings and encouragement to us, beginning from the start of this chapter. You know, even though we're not reading through it, we're not going to talk a lot about it, but yet, it starts from the beginning of this chapter. You know, to not be fearful in our present circumstances, but instead, you know, live in contentment, peace, and courage. Trusting in our God for his provision that is far better than any human resources out there. And so as we look at this passage this morning, you know, I want to offer three things. You know, we're going to talk about the problem here. I want to talk about the explanation of Jesus and then the solution that Jesus gives us. So the problem, the explanation, and the solution. First, let's talk about a problem. So the passage begins with a man. And a crowd coming to Jesus, asking him to adjudicate what he perceived to be an injustice in his life. Right? What happens is that this man, right, his, his, dad, his father has died and left some inheritance to him and his brother. However, there's a squabble between them regarding who gets what. Now, this is an all too familiar situation, which some of you may have experienced in your life. Or maybe some of you will experience, or perhaps you know of someone who has experienced this. Now, it's often a messy affair when we talk about inheritance, talk about who gets what, talk about who gets their fair share. Right? So more often than not, it's an unpleasant situation, and it leads to anger, bitterness, separation, and of course, even lawsuits. 
And so one of the sons came to Jesus and said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We don't have the full details of what had transpired between the brothers. Now, as with Jewish custom in those days, the oldest son, the oldest son always receives double portion inheritance. All right? It's the custom of that day, and that's always been happening. So perhaps maybe this is the reason for the squabble, because one gets double portion, the other gets less. Maybe. But from, from, when you think about this, from the vantage point of most people, you know, what this brother is asking Jesus to do isn't necessarily an irrational request, right? That seems to be an injustice. One gets more, one gets less. But as we see Jesus' response from this passage, we will definitely learn a lot more about the situation. And Jesus is also going to teach us what is the problem of this brother. So seeing the request of the brother, it's interesting to hear Jesus' response. You know, one would imagine Jesus would come to the rescue of this person. After all, he, he comes to the aid of, of people in need, right? So one would imagine Jesus coming to the rescue of this brother and advocate for him. But that wasn't the case. Instead, Jesus shows no interest in his request. He said to him, who made me a judge over you? Who made me a judge over you? Now, this is a rather bizarre situation from Jesus' response here, but what we hear next reveals the problem of this brother. See, Jesus, in all his wisdom, senses the motivation and thought of this brother. He knew what was going on in his heart when he asked Jesus to help him. And so Jesus spoke to him, and Jesus called him out. Jesus called out his greed. He said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of its possessions. So the Greek word for coveting here has to do with access a lot, all right? And it is a desire of wanting more than you can get. And in this situation, the brother clearly wanted more of the inheritance that he already got. And he's asking Jesus for help. He's asking for Jesus to help him in his sinful desire. Guess what? Obviously, Jesus is not interested. He wants no part in it because he does not condone sin. And, and certainly, he does not want to be involved in any form of sinful activities. And so he does not respond to the brother's request. So the brother thinks that the problem of this conflict is the inheritance. But Jesus said the problem here is greed, is coveting, is covetousness. This, that is the problem that sometimes people who struggle with greed don't recognize. You know, obviously a surrounding culture, I spoke a little about that, doesn't help either because our culture glorifies greed. And therefore it seems okay for everyone to feed on it, to live by it. You know, don't be easily satisfied with what you have. Aim higher. Go for more. Think bigger. Think better. You know, our culture is constantly telling us to, to, to not be easily satisfied. Right, to feed into our restlessness, telling us that what we have right now is not sufficient, is not enough. 
We need more. We need more. We need more. Don't be easily satisfied. But Jesus wants us to keep an eye on it. Take care. Be on your guard. Recognize the danger that surrounds you. Now, it's important to know that Jesus' warning is not only for the rich, but also the poor and anyone in the middle. You know, we all have this consuming desire of wanting more than we need. You see, the poor attempted to want things they don't have. And the rich attempted to want more than what they already have. We all have a struggle with that, whether you're rich or poor. We all have a struggle to want more than we already have. So either way, it is greed. Another point to consider, too, is that Jesus' warning is not against you know, ridding ourselves of, of everything we want or desire either. You know, he's not against having material possessions. He's warning against thinking that having an abundance of possessions, of material possessions, is the ultimate goal of life. Now, Phil Riken in his commentary said, our wants may seem small, right? A nice vacation, a more reliable car, a slightly larger house, a somewhat bigger paycheck. These are fine. But if we continue to pursue this, little by little, we get drawn into discontent. Possessions are always trying to possess you until you finally give in to the cravings of a covetous heart. Let me repeat that again. Possessions are always trying to possess you. And so that's why Jesus says, be on your guard. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Now, at times, we have to, to put a stop in it. We have to push back against the culture. You know, Jesus is not against material possessions. Jesus is not against, you know, wanting something more. But at some point in time, we have to learn how to push back. And we have to think through what, what the motivations of our heart, too. And so Jesus is telling us to be on your guard. And then Jesus goes on with the explanation, what it means to... to to uh, what it means to, he, he identifies the problem, which is greed, and then he goes on to explain, what is greed? And so as Jesus identifies the problem of the brother, he proceeds to tell a parable that helps illustrate the problem of greed. So in the parable, we have a man who owns a land and had a very successful year as his harvest was plentiful. Now everything was going well for this man, but due to his success, he fell prey to some sense of false security. And he said, he thought to himself, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now this man could very well typify anyone in our culture today who work extremely hard to build up their 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 businesses, to build out their empire, and found great success in it. This man could be any of us, right, who is good at what he does, who found great success. You know, he doesn't go crazy with his money and instead decides to save and go into early retirement to live off his great savings. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Isn't it harsh for Jesus to condemn this man for retiring? He was an honest man who did not cheat anyone for his land. 
He exercised prudence in his wealth. He does not spend frivolously, but instead exercise control through his savings. Now, in the eyes of most people, this is a responsible man. What is wrong with this man? Nothing. But so why is Jesus condemning this man? Why was Jesus so harsh? To explain, again, Jesus isn't against retirement. I want you to hear that. All right? Jesus is not against retirement. Jesus is not against someone who is successful or accumulate great wealth. He's not. This man's reasoning to build larger barns to store his goods was well thought of in the beginning, but then, as you can see, there's certainly danger in his reasoning to think that he can now go through the motion of life, of retiring in his wealth, and do as he please. Notice the language in, from verse 17 to 19, where four times the passage uses the pronoun my. It's my, my, mine. And then eight times the passage spoke of the pronoun I. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I will do this. I will do that. There's a lot of my's and I's that, that, that to suggest that this man was only thinking about himself. He perceived that he can do whatever he wants with his wealth because he earned it. It's his. But you and I as believers know that that's not true at all. Because in essence, nothing belongs to us. Everything that we have is given by God. Our wealth, our health, our families, our gifts, and our abilities. God owns everything. And in His goodness and grace and mercy, He shares those things with us. He made us His stewards, partakers of His goodness. So, this man, like many people today, made the mistake of claiming ownership on something that is not his. And therefore, this is the essence of greed. Now, see, greed isn't just wanting things that are not yours. Greed isn't just wanting things that are not yours. It is also keeping things that are not yours. Let me repeat that again. Greed isn't just wanting things that are not yours. It is also keeping things that are not yours. And this man, what was he doing? He was hoarding all for himself. He was thinking that this possession is mine, so I'm going to keep it all for myself. I'm going to build up myself up. And this man was hoarding for, more for himself with no regards of the people around him, nor even a thought of praise to God for what God has done for him, how God has blessed his harvest. There is no recognition in whatsoever of anyone else other than himself. And so Jesus rebuked this man vehemently by calling him a fool. A fool he is thinking that he owns anything of his. A fool he is who thinks that he can do whatever he wants with it. Now a fool he is thinking that this perceived lifestyle of retirement for his own indulgence is all there is to life. No, this man was essentially living as, he, as if he is his own God, right? He's doing whatever he pleases. He's controlling his own life. He chooses what he wants. He lives as though as this in recognition of his own um, success with no recognition at all of God. So he is his own God. 
And this echoes the word in Psalm 14, verse 1. And the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Why? Because he is his own God, dictating his own life as he pleases. And again, sadly, this is what many of us, or many people that we know of today, who lives that way. This is the lifestyle of the world today, where we choose to, to glorify it, our own abilities, our own you know, uh, capabilities, our own success. And we keep building more and more into it. And we want people to recognize that. We want people to know how great we are. This is a life that many yearns and promotes it. And Jesus warns us of that. Warns us that you can live a self-indulgent life. You can play God. But ultimately, you will die. And you will lose everything. Everything that you think is important. You will lose all of it. And this man's life is filled with, with physical riches. But deep down, he is spiritually poor and dead. His life is like an old tree, according to Ken Hughes, you know, in his commentary. This, he described that this man is like an old tree. It's dying inside, even while displaying the vestiges of life. So you can either choose the life of a hedonist, like this man, storing up material wealth, living a self-indulgent life to the fullest, but yet living in spiritual poverty of his soul. Or you can, as Jesus said, live as one in the richness of God, knowing that all things are from God and that we are temporary steward of his things, so we learn to use his things well for his kingdom and not ours. See, Jesus wants us to be helping him build his kingdom not our own kingdom. He wants us to be helping to build his kingdom with his resources and not our kingdom and our own resources. So how do we overcome the temptation? How do we guard ourselves against building our own kingdom? Let's look at our final point, the solution. It is hard for us to reorient our mindset to think that our possessions, our families. It's not our own, but God's. I know, it's, it's incredibly hard. You know, I get the temptation, and, and I feel at times to think that, that what I've earned with my bare hands is what I, I earned it, and so it's mine. Or my kids, my families, my wife, they're all mine. You know? But I understand the struggle with that. It's hard for us to reorient our mindset. But there's a reason God calls us to change our mindset because he's preparing us for eternity with him and to experience the richness and glory in heaven that will never fade. Now, as such, he wants us to adopt a heavenly mindset, a life that is rich towards God, and this starts now for us as believers. You know, we don't develop a heavenly mindset when we go to heaven. It starts now. God's kingdom has already begun on earth, and so we're preparing ourselves even right now as we march towards heaven with him. You know, after Jesus had finished telling the people the parable of the rich fool, he turned his attention to his disciples and teach them what, it, what this all means. He said, greed and coveting has no place in God's kingdom. Now, that lifestyle is not going to cut it. So he starts by telling them not to worry about their lives. 
especially what they have and don't have. Now, you may be wondering, what has greed got to do with anxiety? What has greed got to do with anxiety? Well, apparently they're more similar than you think. Now, one commentator said that, that greed means that you can never get enough, right? Greed means that you can never get enough. And worry is afraid that you may not have enough. You see how similar they are? Greed, can, greed means that you can never get enough. Worry means you're afraid that you don't have enough. So they're very, very similar, and much more similar than you think. There's no contentment in greed. There's no peace in worry. And so Jesus said in verse 22, 23, Therefore I tell you not, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Jesus is saying, don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothing. Don't worry about these basic needs, because there is more to life than these basic needs. But make no mistakes that these things are important for life. But yet, Jesus is, is not diminishing the importance of it. Rather, he's telling us that, that while these things are important in life, they are not the only thing that matters in life. Don't seek these things first. Don't make what you eat and what you wear the reason for living. Remember the higher purpose for us is living for God and His kingdom, worshiping Him, serving Him, and loving Him. And so developing the heavenly mindset means that we, first of all, detach ourselves from the worries of this world such as food and clothing or such as any basic needs that you have. And this applies to, to not just food and shelter, clothing, but to a lot more things that we have and want. Ultimately, Jesus is saying that, that you need to learn how to detach yourself from these physical things as you come to Him. And it helps to know that ultimately, these things are just stuff, right? You can't bring them to heaven with you. And so if we stop worrying about these things, eventually, we are going to stop coveting it. If you stop worrying about, about money, you're going to stop coveting it at some point in time. So you see the correlation here between greed and coveting. You know, I love this illustration that I, I read recently, and I, and I came across this. This one pastor said, you know, if you stayed in a nice hotel, I'm sure many of you have, right? You know it's easy to feel at home in this hotel. It is very nice. Imagine you went out shopping and you order a bunch of stuff for this hotel. You pick up new flowers for this hotel. You pick up new furniture for this hotel. You try to remodel. You pick up new paintings. You made this hotel super nice according to how you want it. But then what happens? You check out. You go to the front desk. You leave your key. You leave the, the hotel. What does it tell us? Why are we spending so much money in, in trying to build this hotel, to, to try to refurnish this hotel when it's not ours? You know, the problem for us is a lot of times we, we get sucked into that. You know, we think how great it is, and we want that. And so we, we made ourselves so comfortable in this hotel that we forget that we actually have a nice home. We have a nice home that is waiting for us. No matter how comfortable this hotel is, it is never like our home. 
And so Jesus, you know, tells us, don't worry about these things, these temporary things, because you have something far greater for you. You know, our permanent home ultimately will be with God in a perfect earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this broken place, as great as it is that we live right now, it's not our final destination. Ultimately, this place will be perfected and will look quite different from what it is now, but at this point, it is broken and corrupted. It is still full of temptations and suffering and sin. And so, my friends, we must not learn to get attached too much by making ourselves too comfortable in this hotel when we have our home waiting for us. Not only does Jesus call us into detachment, he also calls us to trust him. Now consider the ravens and the lilies, he said. Neither, neither the birds nor the grass could live without God's providence. And the fact that we are far more important than the animals and the plants because we are God's image bearers. And so if God cares for the animals and the plants and provides for them, how much more will he care for us? How much more will he provide for us as his image bearers? Now the question then is, do we believe him? Do we trust his words? Do we really trust him that he's actually going to take care of us? That he's actually going to provide for all our needs? You see, at the core of all our worries and anxiety, ultimately, is the lack of trust. We worry, ultimately, because we lack trust. Trust in God who provides for us. Trust in God for, for what he will do for us. But God here gives us a promise that he will take care of our needs. And more than that, he has also given, given us ample evidence from his word. And you and I, who have been believers a long time, have seen, have experienced his providence, have experienced his goodness, have experienced his miracles in your daily lives. You have seen all of that. You have experienced all of that. There are enough evidence in your life to justify that God will provide. But yet, there are many times, too, that we keep falling into doubt, into the struggle of worrying, into anxiety. Because a lot of times, we still find ourselves unable to detach ourselves from worrying. At the same time, we also find ourselves lacking in trust. And so here's, Here's what Jesus is telling us then. You know, Jesus is saying that, that I want you to stop worrying. Do not be anxious. But at the same time, he's also telling you to look to what he has done for you. Look to what he has done for this nature out there. The animals, the birds, the lilies. If he can do all of that, he can do that for you. You know, he doesn't just tell you, stop worrying. You know, in fact, if, he tells, if I tell you to stop worrying, what are you going to do? You're going to worry. But he's telling you, stop worrying, and in return, think of these things. So you see here, there's, there's that stop worrying, there's the instruction, but at, at the same time, there's also the solution here. Think of these things. This is very similar to Paul's words in, in Philippians 4. Paul said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. And then Paul said in verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What Paul is saying is don't be anxious. Go to God in prayer. Tell him your worries, whatever it is, whether it's the future of your children or your own future, or perhaps, you know, it is the worry of your current health predicament or the worry of your lack of resources. Bring it to God. Tell God about your worries. And then reorient yourselves to think about what is true, what is honorable, what is lovely, what is praiseworthy. Think about the things that God has done for you to remind you of his promise, to remind you that he's got you. So the exercise is when you are living in anxiety, it's not to stop being, stop worrying. It doesn't work. But instead, you know, if you stop worrying, something else is going to creep up. If you stop worrying about food, something else is going to creep up. You're going to worry about, about, you know, shelter. But instead, Jesus and Paul is telling us, stop worrying. Fill your minds with what is good, what is honorable, what is praiseworthy. Fill your minds with the experiences that you have had with God. Fill your minds with what you have seen and heard from God. Fill your minds with the promises of God. So you got to empty and fill with something else. you got to put something that is, that is worth it in your mind to think through it in order for you to continue to combat anxiety, combat worry. That's what Jesus is saying. You know, trust me, trust what I've done. Look at the examples of the lilies. Look at the examples of the ravens. Fill your minds with what is good, with the experiences that you have had. And that way, you know, you will find yourself slowly detaching yourself from worry. And finally, Jesus says one final thing that would help us combat greed and anxiety. And this is the ultimate test for all of us. He tells us to stop worrying and detach ourselves from things that are far less important and seek God, seek his kingdom. You know, God knows your needs and he will provide in his own time, in his own ways, and sometimes without your intervention. And this requires great trust, right? But here's the thing, if we do trust him, we do find ourselves trusting him, what happens next is going to transform us greatly. Now this, this, it's, tra- it's going to transform one from greed to generosity. Now you see in verse 33 to 34, Jesus presents a radical way to live in the heavenly kingdom, you know, a way of the kingdom. He said, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thieves approaches, no moth destroys. When you realize what you have is not necessarily yours, but God's, and what he wants you to do with it well for his kingdom, then you are more susceptible to share and to give it away. You know, does that mean, again, you know, does that mean that we never own anything? No, that's not what God implies. God wants you to own things, but at the same time, he does not want you to hold on it too tightly. He wants you to have things, but again, don't hold it too tightly. He wants you to be ready to help, to give it away if needed, to look to others in need. These are God's 
practical way of calling us not to detach ourselves. And some of us may think that, wait, giving things away, you know, sharing things with others, doesn't this sound like communism? No. This is Christian charity. This is kingdom living. It's a biblical depiction of the strong helping the weak, of the rich helping the poor, the able helping the disabled. This is God's vision for his people living in his kingdom. And Jesus concludes with this provoking statement, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, your heart is the center of your soul, and that is where all your desires and treasures lies, all your wants. So the question is, what is your treasure? What is occupying your heart? Is it the earthly treasure that you are storing for yourselves? Is it your retirement income, your luxury home, your successful business empire? Or is it the heavenly treasure? Is it in building God's kingdom through the resources that God has given you, whether it's your time, your gifts, or your money? See, where your heart is, that's where your treasure lies. And it's something that we have to ask ourselves. Ask ourselves, what, where, what is our treasure? What is God speaking in our hearts? And we find ourselves thinking that, that at times we have leaned on our own understanding, lean on, on you know, building up our own selves. Come to God. Come to Him. He calls you to come to Him. You know, at times when we find ourselves living in such restless lives, you know, thinking about all the things around us, trying, occupying our minds with all the things that are around us, Jesus calls you to come to him, and he will give you rest. You see, one of the biggest problems that sin, uh, sin has created for us is restlessness. Right at the beginning, in Genesis 3, at the fall, what happens there is that, you know, the minute Adam and Eve sinned, the world fell into restlessness. We're never enough. It's never satisfying. You know, we're always searching and searching and searching. Everyone lives in this restlessness. Creation lives in this restlessness because there's all kinds of conflicts that's going on. And yet Jesus comes and he tells us, I will provide rest for you, the ultimate rest that you will need from your restless hearts. And so he invites you to come to him. If you are restless in your heart right now, if you're struggling with greed, with contentment, you know, you're struggling to make sense of life, he's calling you to come to him. He's calling you to bring your restless heart and to receive the rest that he will give you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for your word, for your timely word, Lord. I know that at times that when we think about this passage about greed, about money, about retirement, about possessions, Lord, at times that we think about these things, it's easy for us to look to ourselves, look to our own accomplishment, look to, to what we have. And then when we look at these things, times, you know, we, we either pat ourselves on the back thinking how great we are or other times we find ourselves worrying because we don't have enough or worrying that because we want more. And so I pray that, Lord, you would help us to think through these things, think through what it means to ultimately have security in God, to 
up, up to come to you, Lord, to know that ultimately in our restlessness, Lord, we can come to you to find rest in our searching and longing and in, in our desire of wanting more, in our desire of, of looking for things that are that is beyond our control. Help us, Lord, to come to you and to know that ultimately you, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who created us, the God who gives life, the God who owns all things in this world and who has the riches of heaven waiting for us, this is the God who will ultimately give us rest from our restlessness. And so I pray that you help us this morning even as we come before him. Search our hearts and call us to you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.